everyone, welcome to another episode of the Browns Know Podcast. This is episode 26. We are in week four of the NFL season. Going to be a little different here on this week's Browns Note podcast. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. If you'd be so kind, please drop a follow at FTBL Sickness. My usual co-host and partner in crime on this Browns Note podcast, Mr. Brendan Leister, who you can and should be following at Brendan Leister, is unavailable this week. Coaching and work duties have gotten in the way of our scheduling, and of course, there's always the issue that is created by the three-hour time difference, so can't get it every week, but we do have a, a treat this week as, uh, as our old friend Pete Smith is going to be on. This is actually Pete's first appearance on the podcast, but as any of you who are with us on Twitter know... Pete is one of the more knowledgeable and uh, and fun Browns fans to chat Browns with. So I'll have Pete on here in just a few short minutes. But uh, I did have a couple of thoughts I wanted to share with everybody. Um, you know, <laughs> let's try, if we could, to allow the season to play out just a little bit more before we start panicking. I mean, we needn't be quite so susceptible to the ups and downs of the roller coaster, the emotional roller coaster that is a Cleveland Browns football season. There are things to build on. I'm going to have Pete tell you about some of those things, um, even where we can all agree there have been things that just haven't been what we were hoping to see coming into this season. Obviously, the loss to the Raiders was a disappointing game. I think Petten put it well when he said it was a wasted opportunity in front of the home crowd. Sure looked clear to me like had the Browns simply showed up for the first part of the game, um, this, this might have been a whole different football game. Obviously, it got close there at the end. But uh, this is not a team that's equipped to get down a bunch of points and then start using Josh McCann, McCown to fling it all over the yard to catch up. So that's something that they clearly know about themselves and that they're going to have to do better with because it just can't be that Josh McCown comes out and gets to play half a game at a time. I mean, I'm, I'm with all of you all who are all saying, well, look, Josh McCown is not the answer here. Nobody is going to sell you that Josh McCown is. Um, but we'll talk to Pete about, of course, what that means with respect to the obvious elephant in the room with Johnny. He wrote a nice piece on it, so I'm going to allow him some time to, to chat about that as well. Um, just looking at the team's stats, though, the things that are obviously jumping out at us, this ranking, you know, looking at Pro Football References Browns page for the 2015 Browns, the league ranks in defense are just abominable in the rushing department again. And so... When we continue to see the same problems over and over again, it's it's very easy, I think, as Browns fans to go, look, the organization just doesn't have a clue. We've got another set of coaches who suck. We've got another set of front office people who suck. And, of course, we're getting some rumors on all of these fronts um, that don't help matters in terms of perception. And, obviously, the quarterback decision is skewing everybody's perception. And To me, what I do is I just go, all right, look, we are three weeks into a 16-week season. I can't tell you how different seasons look from week 16 when you're looking back to what they looked like at week three. It is constant change. There are constant things happening in this league where seasons can turn for teams. I mean, nobody thought Baltimore was going to be one and three, but I suspect not many of you think they're going to, you know, be six and ten at the end of this thing either. So I think we need to slow down allow a new offense a little time to adjust, allow a couple of guys to try and get healthy, which we'll need. If we can't get them healthy, it's not going to matter. But at any rate, I am excited about this weekend's game against the San Diego Chargers, not only because it's another opportunity to hopefully put a Browns victory on the board, but because this time I get to be attending. Uh, so for those of you that are either making a trip to SoCal or live out here, um, hit me up on Twitter. 
let me know. We're going to have a, a nice tailgate going. I'm sure some of you will as well. And hopefully the SoCal Dog Pound will be strong. So with that, I would, uh, I would say go Browns. Here we have it, Mr. Pete Smith. This is my conversation with Pete. We just got done a few minutes ago. I thank him again for coming on, and I'll be back right after this to, uh, to finish up with some final thoughts. All right, I'm excited to be joined now on the podcast by Pete Smith, who is a, an old Twitter friend, but this is the first time we're able to able to chat in real life, as it were. He does a lot of work for Draft Breakdown, and you've probably seen his articles at the NFL Spin Zone. Pete, it's good to finally have you on, man. That's a pleasure, man. I've been uh, looking forward to it. And I should mention also the Twitter handle is at PeteSmithFS, so please do hit him with a follow there. And uh, we're going to talk, obviously, first a little bit about that game last week against the Raiders. Um, and, you know, I'm going to throw you a nice, fun softball first, since I know you were one of the more vocal Derek Carr supporters going back to his draft class when we were so fortunate to have drafted Mr. Manziel. Tell me, uh, go ahead and do a victory lap. Tell us, tell us what you liked about him back then, and then, you know, kind of what you're seeing to confirm all that now. You look at a kid like Derek Carr, and the big thing that you love about that, going back to his Richard sophomore years, he had an arm that could do whatever he wanted, athletic, quick feet, uh, accuracy, question marks, but the fact that he had quick feet made you feel like you could work on it. They still pop up now and again, but the big thing that sold me on Derek Carr and getting a chance to speak with him on a few occasions uh, is just the overwhelming amount of maturity. The, the stuff that is hurt Manziel uh, as a rookie the partying, the you know the, the issues that it landed him in rehab. Derek uh, Carr got that out of his system in college. You know the, where you'd want a kid to sort of have that that uh, issue. Uh, he, he grew up. He got married. He's got a child. I mean, he's he's an absolute addict when it comes to the game of football. And there's you know nobody. If if Derek Carr ultimately it were, were to fail, would would be because he just didn't have the ability. It was he's the type of kid you love to bet on because he he is an addict. He loves to work on it. He he's not afraid to address his flaws and go right at them. So I mean, to see what the Raiders are getting, they should be very excited. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of fun to watch him grow up and get better. So I mean, you know, there's certainly a, uh, you're certainly bitter about the fact that he's not in Cleveland. I mean, I, I remember getting a chance to ask him uh, in an interview if he was going to rent or own in Cleveland. He just sort of laughed at it. Oh, man. Yeah, well, we'll see how it plays out over the next couple of years. That certainly looked like a pretty professional quarterback out there on Sunday tearing us up. But you did mention Manziel, and so I ought to actually ask you about that now, too, because you put up a good post this week on NFL Spin Zone that, uh, you know, I retweeted for folks and said I endorsed every word of it because it basically encapsulates sort of the way I look at it. And I know you and I have gone back and forth enough to know that we see this thing similarly, but so that they can get a different um, voice rather than my own repetitive one. Maybe you could give uh, our listeners just a, a taste of sort of your view of, you know, where Johnny is and why it is, um, at least as you observe it, that, that the coaching staff is not comfortable yet thrusting him in there as the starting quarterback. Well, the, the thing I think it's important to point out is that people are excited about Johnny Manziel and considering where he was, that alone is awesome. The fact that you know, at this point last year, even, you know, in the summer, this was a, man, they blew it. This is an awful decision. This is going to get somebody fired. This is holding the team back multiple years, whatever. 
the fact that now we're in a position where, you know, he actually looked like a quarterback instead of a random fan in a Manziel jersey uh, against the Bengals last year is a huge step in the right direction. But from now, what you're seeing is a guy who is just sort of starting to walk as a quarterback. He's just they, the plays they sort of run to him, a very limited playbook. It's very conservative. They're sort of trying to protect him from himself. Uh, a lot of protection staying in, limited options as far as receivers. You know, one of the things I noted is, is you, one of the reasons they loved Duke Johnson when they drafted him was as a receiving option. And they, they, they raved about his hands and what they wanted to do to get him the ball out of the backfield and all these things. And with Manziel in there, he just doesn't know enough for the playbook that Duke Johnson never got even a target. And then with Josh McCown, even if you don't think he's good, and I don't personally think he's very good, he got seven targets this past week, caught six balls and made a big play the last possession of the game. There's just a level of comfort. I mean, Manziel played a system that didn't ask him to read defenses. Now he has to learn that. He has to go through all of these sort of progressions and all these people are saying, well, you got to get game reps. Most of the stuff he needs to do, he just he can do on his own in the film room. Learning to read defenses, learning to diagnose, learning to just understand the plays he needs to be able to run. And then on top of that, uh, now being able to go on the practice field and execute them, all these people are sort of in this mindset of, well, just just throw it out there. Coaches don't think like that. You want to try something out, you go on the practice field. Everything is with coaching is about sort of giving up control. And you're not going to do that with sort of a random guess of, uh, of throwing a kid out there and just seeing what he can do. And if you actually go, go down on the sideline of an NFL game, it looks like quarterbacks are basically playing in full-on highway traffic. And you do that with a kid, you're basically putting his life in danger if he doesn't know what he's doing. And if he gets beat up, he may stick it out and do a couple things to try to get better. But after a while, he's just going to try to avoid getting hit. And that you don't want that to happen. Then you end up like David Carr. You end up like Tim Couch and stuff where instead of trying to make plays, they're looking at the pass rush. They're looking to try to just avoid getting killed anymore and they stop making plays. That doesn't make anybody better. And the other part of that is if he's not where he needs to be, other guys can't get better. As mentioned, Duke Johnson's not able to sort of do the role they wanted him to do. Now he's in a position where he can. Manziel will get there if they, if they think he's going well. I think it's, it's a step in the right direction. But, I mean, unless you are of the belief that Manziel has done this all by himself, you have to at least concede that the coaching staff is at no worse put him in a situation where he's in a position to get better as a quarterback and potentially succeed. Huge strides going, going in the right direction for him. And he's going to play. It's going to happen. you just got to sort of bear with it. I'm excited to see him. I don't like watching bad football, but at the same time, you sort of got to grin and bear it and hope he gets to where he needs to be and get, put him in the best position to succeed. The last thing anyone wants is for him to go out there, look like he did in Cincinnati, and then we have to go start from the, the drawing board where we have to try to trade up and get a quarterback. At least now, I still believe they have to draft a quarterback, but at least you have Manziel and another quarterback as options and legitimate chances to get better at the position. Yep, that's that's more or less exactly how I see it. I mean, there has to be. Look, I agree with the notion that game reps are helpful, but, but to me, game reps are not helpful until and unless the quarterback has, you know, sufficient sort of just baseline fundamental competency on how to execute the basic offense. And I think 
I think, like you're saying, though, we've seen big strides out of Manziel in his last performance. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that if you take out those bookend touchdowns, and I know everybody likes to remind me that, but you can't take out the bookend touchdowns. Granted, they scored the touchdowns, but they're not repeatable that often. The rest of that game, I mean, we were talking about a guy that completed six balls for no yards, and, and they didn't move the ball all day. So I, I just I think that is a result of not knowing enough and, and that being a constraint on an offense that already has more constraints than it probably wants to begin with. And so as I sort of, you know, leak our conversation into that, um, what we saw out of the offense last week against the Raiders, I mean, you, you did mention the additional um, use of Duke Johnson. I'm sure anybody that saw sort of the, you know, the the still photo that was tweeted around a bit of that last play, the interception that McCown threw, they'd, they certainly wish Duke Johnson would have gotten at least one more catch. Um, but tell us what you see in terms of sort of the evolution of the offense this year because I, I know everybody is concerned about the way they are not running the ball when, and, and frankly, we're hearing a lot of, well, what's going on with the offensive line because it was supposed to be a strength of the team. And I know you've got a couple of thoughts on that. Tell me kind of your, your overview on the offense and then you know what specifically you saw against Oakland that you liked and that you didn't. Well, the, the offensive line is not a bunch of, you know, guys who are just going to maul people. They just aren't that. I mean, Mitchell Schwartz is probably the most powerful guy of the bunch, uh, but they're, they're, they're position blocking people for the most part. You're going to see them, you know, put themselves in spots where they create a seam. It's not going to be a, you know, often not going to be a truck-sized hole that somebody can run through. Again, you have to, if you're running zone, you have to have, a running back that can see the hole, and Isaiah Crowell needs a seeing-eye dog, and that's too many men on the field to be able to find the hole. So every time they run Crowell, it's some sort of gap hole, and he still manages to miss some of those, which is just mind-boggling. You basically have to give him one place to go in order for him to succeed, and even then it's somewhat of a gamble. But, but I mean, the, most of the running game's issues come to the fact that defenses don't respect the Browns is a passing team, and, and they don't have a reason to right now. I mean, the thing that that's incredibly frustrating is that Josh McCown played the most Brian Hoyer game of football he possibly could have uh, this past week against the Raiders. The big knock on Hoyer, and still is, is he's inaccurate. He's inconsistent. Well, this past week, you know, Josh McCown was supposed to be a guy that made the plays he was supposed to make. There were a ton of plays left on the field that he was supposed to make, and he made a couple of plays he shouldn't have which is fine, but he, his task, his, the reason they signed him was to make those plays that were wide open. You know, some of those slants, he, you know, some of these passes, the, the slants were behind guys, flats were upfield, the guys, he just wasn't, wasn't very good in ball locations. It got better, I suppose. Maybe he got a little more comfortable, but I just, you know, there's, there's reason to be frustrated with what you saw. Will he get better? Maybe. Uh, but you saw the Browns use a lot of aggressive formations. They used a lot of empty, maybe too much empty for their own good. Uh, I think they tried desperately to use to, uh, to, to try to use Travis Benjamin the same way Manziel did, using him to sort of stretch the field and try to open things up. They just missed it, couldn't connect, made a couple of missteps in that direction, which are frustrating. I mean, Josh, I give Josh McCall credit. He's the first man uh, I've seen in the NFL match to overthrow Travis Benjamin, which is something to be said. Uh, Duke Johnson, you, you just got to keep using them as a receiving threat. They use Malcolm Johnson as a guy who can open things up. 
uh, you know, there's there's options. They just have to execute. And when if you can execute the place you should, it should open up more running lanes. And if that happens, then suddenly there's a little more balance to the offense. But right now, when you miss those throws and you put yourself behind schedule, then the running game just doesn't look very good. And defenses just don't respect it. And it's tough to play behind schedule when your team like the Browns that don't have game breakers right now. I mean, Travis Benjamin's maybe your biggest playmaker, and he might be a flash in the pan, which is a terrifying thought. The fact that they don't have size in the middle of that offense is, is a little scary. Gary Barnage, you know, has had, we had a great game, does, did some nice things, but he's ideally a number two tight end. He just is. I mean, you you don't have Jordan Cameron out there to, to open things up. And pe- people, I saw people post numbers of Jordan Cameron and, and Gary Barnage is still producing him in straight numbers. That's fine. But the big thing that, that Cameron did is he is he forced teams to respect him and opened up opportunities for those smallest receivers. Without that guy there, all of a sudden our small receivers look that much smaller and it's tough. But Gabriel's a guy that's got to get more balls to him and, and more effectively used. Uh, he made a great catch on one of those sideline plays where McCown managed to fit a ball and he probably shouldn't have. So, I mean, there's there's things there that you like. You just got to keep building on it and execute the plays that are there. That's all it is. And, you know, I'm sure you've run into it, too, where these people tell you execution. That's just that's just a lame excuse. Well, that's the whole thing. That's, that's literally the, whole the name game. of the game. <laughs> yeah. I, I always find, you know, we do get some fun arguments on Twitter that, to me, betray total failures to comprehend what we're even talking about. But, uh, I, you know, Execution is the name of the game. I mean, the, the margin between failure and success in the NFL comes down to which team does it better. And, you know, because the talent levels, by and large, just aren't that disparate. I mean, there are a couple teams that are a little bit more stacked than the rest. But aside from that, it's about who gets their job done better. And that's why all that Belichick stuff actually does work like crazy. One last thought on the offensive line. You know, you've uh, obviously we've got Mac coming off the injury. And I, you've had a couple of thoughts out there about what you think is going on because people, like I say, there's, there's been a lot of what I'll call early panic about the offensive line. It, it feels to me like Mac has gotten progressively better each week, but that he's not, qu- I mean, not quite. I don't, it, to me, he still doesn't look close to the guy uh, that he was right before he got hurt. So I'm, I'm wondering if you, without being a, you know, I'm not asking you to make medical diagnoses here, but what have you seen out of Mac? Because I think people look at that and think, well, number one, it's a concern just for this year if he's not going to be himself. But number two, obviously with the with the draft pick and Cam Irving, there's at least a narrative or a thought out there that that was Mac insurance in the first place. And if Mac isn't right, well, that adds a whole new portion to that story. What are your What are your thoughts there? Well, the biggest the biggest thing is is big guys who have broken broken bones in, in the lower part of their body and their legs, it's hard to recover. And the, the guy I'll point to is Jonathan Cooper, who broke his fibula his rookie year. And I'm still not sure he's the same from that, which is what made me immediately worried about Mac. Uh, Mac is healthy, but he's still working back from the flexibility thing. And, and I... You know, I got a response from Duke Manyweather, who's a you know real respected offensive line uh, analyst and a guy who's familiar with this type of stuff. And and the basic point he made is he's just got to get more flexible. And that's you know so much of the offensive line position is ankle flexibility, and that's what Mac's sort of missing. But you know, you're right, he is getting better. It's a different story than it was week one. So if he gets back to where he can, you know, 100% is seems to be possible, which is which is important and huge for the Browns because obviously. You know, this is one of their impact players. This is a guy they need to be good. He's a Pro Bowl player, and and 
and whether people want to sort of realize it or not, Mac has a shot, however slim you might think it is, to make the Hall of Fame. Uh, so, I mean, if he can get back there, and I, I you know, I, obviously I don't know when that'll happen, but if he can get back there, it changes the the offensive line quite a bit. I mean, Petonio's and, and Greco get so much better because they have a guy like Mac they can count on. And you just look at last year when Mac was right, uh, he was the driving force in the middle of that line, and Petonio and, and Greco played off of it. And the Browns, after they lost Mac, went down 12 points per game with the Mac injury, which is, you know, that tells you everything you need to know. So, I mean, not fully healthy, you're, you're still not getting all 12 back. You're, you're sort of in the middle there, and he's just got to keep working and working and working. But, you know, this is just, this is the big thing. The Browns have to sort of make a – the Browns, especially Mac, have to sort of think on how they want to approach this contract stuff because he does have an opt-out, and everything suggests that he would opt-out and go for one last big payday, uh, being that he's only 30. He could get one last big contract and potentially – uh, get get in a bunch of guaranteed money, not of Rodney Hudson just got, of those Raiders we just played. Uh, looking at that first year, he got something like $14 million. Uh, Alex Mack's agent has to like that. And, and everything I've ever heard with Mack is he always wants to uh, maximize his, his market value. Nothing wrong with that. And, and he's been a great player, professional guy. Uh, so th- there are certainly hurdles to climb. But, you know, just for the – for the time being, hopefully he gets better because there are questions with Irving and, and Irving's been brought along and you sort of as an extra lineman. But, uh, you know, it's just got to get better and they've got to be able to, to count on him. And, and if he's right, then maybe they can get a, the offensive line going and, and get back to being the offense they, you know, they sold us on being and the, the offense they want to be. Well, and let's hope that they can do something similar on defense because it's sure not living up to – you know, the expectations so far, and I think there are any number of reasons for that. Let's at least at the outset concede that they've got guys hurt all over both, both, excuse me, all three levels of the defense. I mean, there, there are issues there. Missing Scott Solomon, it sounds like they're going to miss maybe both Bryants this weekend. So that there are, you know, we've got problems in the secondary galore. Um, but even even having conceded all that, I think most of us would agree that the, the performance on defense on the whole um, certainly, if you're looking at it from a results standpoint, it's no good, and and you know from a from a game flow standpoint, it has again been poor in a couple of ways. And and the ones that continue to stick out to me, uh, number one, they have got to be the worst end of half end of game team in the league over the past several years. And then number two, look, they still just can't stop the damn run. And I've heard everything from run fits to injuries to we didn't have the right personnel to guys just missing tackles. And obviously it's some combination of all of them. But you had a really a really well put together post. Again, this one up on NFL Spin Zone this week. And it was your thoughts on the defense and where it is and where it needs to get. And again, I would just ask you to kind of summarize your thoughts on the defense as it stands today. Because I think, number one, there were observations in there from, from Oakland and the other games. But number two, I, I found a lot of it. I, I, encouraging is maybe the word. I mean, the one stat that I know stuck out to me was, look, aside from two runs that cost them 74 yards and roughly 10 points, uh, you know, they, were, they gave up 2.9 per carry on the ground. And uh, to me, there's, there's something to build on there. If you can do that for all but two carries, then really it's just about eliminating whatever dumbass mistakes caused those two carries, right? The, it's a good news, bad news situation. The good news is that the guys who need to get better are the young guys, and the evidence suggests they are getting better. Uh, I got, 
you know, people laughed when, when I said it was a bad thing that Scott Solomon got hurt, and, and people just thought it was hysterical that the Browns' defense would fall apart because of that. Scott Solomon was by far and away the best uh, edge defender as far as the run goes uh, that really gave them balance across from Mingo, who's you know the best run defender. And, and for people who sort of don't like Mingo, if you watch a game – uh, and you watch where Mingo is, the run is going away from him. It just, it is. It just, they're consistently running away from him. But the guys you need to get better are the young guys. And if you look at the, the, the way the game went, uh, two weeks ago, Armani Bryant was abysmal setting the edge. He just was constantly out of position. He wasn't in the right spot. And then this past week, especially early on, he was great. He was in the right, in the right spots, making tackles for losses. He was just doing his job wasn't trying to do anything superhuman. He was just doing what he was supposed to do, and it was looking great. Uh, the bad news part of that is that Dante Whitner has been straight garbage this year. Uh, you know, the veterans are letting him down. The guys who should know how to play football are the guys that aren't playing football the, the right way. And the two big runs that, that uh, they gave up, one was at the end of the half, like you said, and it, believe that it's embarrassing how bad they are in the, in the end of the first half embarrassing but that the, the first play that half it seemed like Oakland might have been trying to sort of sit on the ball and quit and then suddenly they get this run where uh you know you have Randy Stark sort of squeeze try to get skinny like he's trying to uh trying to put rush the pass or the, the the ball carrier goes right behind his butt the play gets funneled right to Dante Whitner who's out of position he's that's his gap. He's supposed to make the play. He's not there, and the guy just runs right, runs right past in 20 yards, and so they think, they're thinking get more points. They finish the half getting a touchdown instead of a field, you know, instead of a punt or nothing or whatever. And it's just it's deflating for from you as a team standpoint. It's deflating on the scoreboard. It's just it's just bad football. And then the, the 54 yard run's the same deal. They funnel the play right to Dante Whitner. Ten guys do their job on the play. And Dante Whitner's just not there, and you know it's more than just uh, it's more than just he's not making tackles. Some of it he's out of position. I don't know if he's trying to do too much. And part of me wants to ask the question: Is maybe Dante Whitner lost a little bit of his nerve? Uh, there's a couple plays where it's almost, and it's probably unfair because you know I'm not out there, but it's almost like he turns down the contact on a couple of these plays. He doesn't wrap up. There's a couple plays where he's diving at the ground trying to trip guys up instead of taking them on as a strong safety should. He tackles like a corner. Uh, it's just he's not playing the way he has been able to. And people talk about, well, he wasn't very good last year. He was pretty good last year. He was a good player last year. He did a nice job. Uh, he was the guy he, they brought him in to be. He was pretty good in, in coverage. He was pretty good uh, you know, filling in the run. Now he still had an occasional missed tackle, but he was just a better player. And then you look at the uh, the passing game, and some of this was defensive design. But Dante Whitner against Amari Cooper just isn't fair, and they had him matched up a couple of those, and you're just sort of looking at it going, he has no shot, and of course he didn't. But, I mean, if you're looking at this from a standpoint of who are the guys that have to get better for the Browns to get better both now and going forward, it's those young guys. Armani Bryant looks to be getting better. Craig Kirksey looks to be getting better. Danny Shelton, a little bit up and down, but, you know, they like what they see, and you love his effort. If nothing else, he runs, he chases plays down. Well, and so, he is—he is regularly know, getting that double team, which is a whole different deal than getting it at Washington. You know, dealing with NFL double teams has to be a bit of an adjustment, no matter how big and strong you are playing that position in this defense. Where, I mean, it's 
the anchor isn't even the right word, but it's so critical to what they do with those three guys up front to have the one in the middle be able to eat two blocks and not get pushed too far back. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of people kind of poking Danny Shelton with the do-something stick, and it's like, I'm not sure you're understanding what exactly his job here is. The other part of that is I think John Hughes is a good player that probably needs to play more on rundowns, and I think he... I think with the Desmond Bryant injury, he'll get his opportunity to show that. He's a big, thick kid. He's not a dynamic pass rusher, which is what Desmond Bryant gives you, but he'll plug the run. But, I mean, if you look at the first quarter of that Raiders game, they had seven carries for negative one yards. I mean, that's something you can build on. That's something you can be happy about. That's Danny Shelton clogging. That's those guys up the middle clogging and guys coming up and making plays. I mean, the, the thing that scares you about that, on the other hand, is the pass defense is bad, and guys like Joe Hayden need to step up, and he's got to just play better. Uh, Deshaun Gibson's got to play better, but on the, on the other side of that, you know, Pierre Desir looked pretty good. Uh, Tremont Williams has been unbelievable. He's basically been what Joe Hayden's supposed to be uh, on the other side, and a lot, you know, he's an inconsistent player coming from Green Bay, so you're sort of like, you know, pleasant surprise there. The loss of Kwan Williams undoubtedly hurts. But, I mean, the biggest thing that's killing the Browns right now is the overall safety play. It's just not what it should be. Tayshawn Gibson needs to play better for a guy who's supposed to be in a contract year, a guy who wants to get paid and all this. He needs to sort of step up. But Dante Whitner, you're getting to a point now where it's Coach Pett's got to sort of make some tough decisions coming up. It's either he's going to get better or they're going to have to move on to somebody else. If, if K1 Williams is back in there, that frees up Jordan Poyer. And some combination of Ibrahim Campbell and Jordan Poirier may be the way to go. Randy Starks is very up and down, but again, he's another one where you can sort of go younger if you really want to do that, whether it's Hughes, whether it's Cooper. Again, I understand the frustration, but again, there are things to get better. And the thing that people just don't understand is when one guy does the job wrong and it goes for a 54-yard run, they think everybody did their job wrong. It just doesn't work that way. So, I mean, understand that, that Coach Petten and that staff have to get better. They just do. It, they've got to get more out of these guys, but it's not as awful as maybe people think it is because, as it always is in the NFL, you're never as bad as after a loss and you're never as good as after a win. So you just got to sort of even it out, and I like the message that Petten has, and I, I hope they can get it right this week against San Diego. Well, and looking ahead to that game against San Diego, I'll tell you the thing that I'm I'm very intrigued by. I just saw a tweet a, a little while ago that listed roughly every offensive lineman uh, for the for you know every starting offensive lineman for the Chargers is is some sort of injured, either definitely out or highly questionable for this weekend. And it occurs to me that in this game in particular, some pass rush was going to be important anyway because if you allow Phillip Rivers to stand back there and have time, he is going to de- just absolutely demolish you with Keenan Allen and with their their tight ends and with Stevie Johnson and with uh, Danny Woodhead out of the backfield. And that's before we get to talking about how how the run game will be affected with a guy like Melvin Gordon out there. So I'm wondering, you know, from a pass rush standpoint, what was the distinction? Because they, they had such a successful day against Tennessee and Mariota, and I know at least a good chunk of that was because Mariota was uh, probably deceived by what he was looking at. He was holding the ball a decent amount of time. Um, against a veteran, a guy who knows exactly what he's looking at almost every single snap like Phillip Rivers and who is so adept at, number one, avoiding the rush, and number two, getting the ball out somehow to a receiver uh, prior to the pass rush getting home. How do you see the Browns' defense attacking, um, attacking this kind of an offense 
Well, I think it has to start with stopping Keenan Allen, however you feel like you can do that. I mean, if if, if it's Hayden, if it's Tremont, if it's whoever it is, somebody's got to stop Keenan Allen because he's the guy who's going to gut you if you let him, uh, however they want to defend it. But I think that the thing the Browns have to do is, A, mix up coverage, and B, if he's out there, attack Joe Barksdale with everything you've got because he's easily the weak link on that line. So whoever it is, if it's Armani Bryant, if he's, if he's healthy, if it's Nate Orchard, if it's Mingo moving there, Kruger, whoever, you've got to attack Joe Barksdale and somehow, some way get hits on Phillip Rivers because, you know, with these, these veteran quarterbacks, the only thing that really messes them up is – is getting pressure up the middle and taking away their room to step or hit. I mean, they've seen it all. You know, you can occasionally fool these guys with coverages, but ultimately you just got to win up front and hit guys. Take away the run if you can, as best you can, uh, and then and then just put hits on the quarterback and make them uncomfortable. I mean, I just don't – you know, Patton and, and O'Neill have a, a, a good scheme, but it's mostly a man-based scheme. They don't really use a ton of – of zone, it doesn't mean they won't. It doesn't mean they can't. But in terms of really fooling a quarterback like Philip Rivers, I just—it's tough to think he's going to see something he hasn't really seen. And the only way to really get him off of rhythm is 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 jamming and jamming receivers, and then just knocking the crap out of him whenever he gets a chance. Yep, that's what I'm going to be looking for. I will be fortunate or unfortunate enough, depending on how the result shakes out, to be—I'll uh, be front row. Second, second level up in the uh, in the end zone. So I've got the the coach's view tape, uh, just as in my as my live view on Sunday. So I'm looking forward to it. Hey Pete, before we let you go, what we do every week is we make our little score predictions, and you are duty bound, of course, to predict a Browns victory. So within those constraints, sir, I ask you to give me your Browns score prediction for this weekend. Well, given the fact that this is the roller coaster that is the Browns, and, and the weirdest thing is probably the most likely, I'll say 35 to 35-14 Browns, just because it's the perfect way to make this season make no sense. God, that is beautiful. I would love that. I would be uh, dancing in the streets. I'm going to be a little more conservative about it. I'll go 24 to 21 Browns and hope that somehow the defense makes a play or two, and that uh, that Josh doesn't throw it away. But Pete. I really do appreciate you joining me, certainly last minute the way we did it this week, and we'll get you back on again this season for sure. That's Pete Smith, everybody. You can check him out at NFL Spin Zone. He does good work for Draft Breakdown, which if you don't know them, you're a little behind the uh, the times and you need to get on that. And then, of course, you can follow Pete at Pete Smith FS on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that was Pete Smith. Again, please do follow him at Pete Smith FS. Great guest, really enjoyed chatting with him. Obviously a guy that knows a ton about football, understands where the Browns are. He watches the Browns games, not just, you know, the live view. This guy studies them. You can see it in his work um, on, on NFL um, Spin Zone. You can see it in, in his discussion on Twitter. So always nice to have a, a knowledgeable voice and uh, – Hope you enjoyed that. So that is this week's Browns Note Podcast. This was episode 27. And we will be back again next week. I believe Mr. Leister will be back in full swing. And we'll be back hopefully after a Browns victory. And with that, we leave you. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Go Browns! (laughs) 